Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the kids' books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their favorite children's books. This podcast is the 23rd podcast I've published. Uh, While the number 23 doesn't really have any special significance to me, the fact that it's being published on November 1st, 2017 does have a great deal of significance. And that's because one year ago, on November 1st, 2016, I published my very first Dream Gardens podcast. Now, I can't claim I've taken the podcast world by storm since then. If you ask any five random strangers if they've ever heard of Dream Gardens, chances are all five of them will give you blank looks. Still, um, each podcast that goes out draws in a few more listeners each time, and no one's told me I should probably find a better use of my time yet, so I'm pretty happy with how things are going. I'm getting better at doing interviews, and I hope that shows, but I know I still have a lot to learn. For example, I'm still working out all the technical issues that come with recording and editing a podcast. Like the interview with Charlotte Bernardo you'll hear today, for example, there are a few micro-glitches I can't quite figure out and I can't eliminate, so it doesn't sound as smooth as I would like it to sound. It's still a great interview, though, so I hope those few random glitches don't distract from the words being said. That would be a shame. And really, the wonderful thing about doing this podcast is all those people who've agreed to put themselves out there to talk a little bit about a kid's book that's meant a great deal to them. With any luck, that'll mean something to a listener who decides to give that book a chance. Because that's what I really want this to be, a chance to show that kids' books aren't just something slight and superficial we throw at children until they're ready for more serious adult literature that's out there but that these books have a depth and emotional resonance to them on par with any other genre, and that the best of them stay in our memories and inform our lives in valid and meaningful ways. Now, I've gone on here longer at the beginning than I usually do, and I do want to get to the interview quickly. Uh, At the same time, I don't want to stop reading a poem at the beginning that I've been doing for the past few podcasts. But I'll stick with a short poem today by the great kids poet Jack Perlutsky. Uh, This one is from the book The New Kid on the Block, and it's called Jellyfish Stew. Jellyfish Stew by Jack Prelutsky. Jellyfish Stew, I'm loony for you. I dearly adore you. Oh, truly I do. You're creepy to see, revolting to chew. You slide down inside with a hullabaloo. You're soggy, you're smelly, you taste like shampoo. You bog down my belly with oodles of goo. Yet I would glue noodles and prunes to my shoe for one oozy spoonful of jellyfish stew. My guest today is Charlotte Bernardo, author of the Evolution Revolution series, including such books as Simple Machines, Simple Plans, and Simple Lessons. As well, she she is the co-author of Blonde Ops and the Siren series. You can find Charlotte's website at charlottebernardo.blogspot.com. Thank you for joining me today, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned, you've written this uh, middle grade Evolution Revolution series. Uh, for readers who may not be uh, familiar with that series, can you tell a little bit what it's about? Sure. It's about this squirrel. The whole book is told from the squirrel's point of view. He goes into a backyard and meets a boy who teaches him how to use simple machines. Uh, He starts with rolling a wheel from a a model car kit, and the squirrel learns how to roll nuts. And from there, 
he realizes that by rolling rocks and twigs, he can stop the construction machines that are going to come into his wood. And what inspired you to uh, write this book? Well, actually, it was my son's, my middle grade, third grade homework. He brought home uh, a whole section, um, simple machines, the wheel, the lever, axles, incline planes. There's six altogether. And I didn't think anything of it at the time. And then we had this crazy squirrel, and okay, I feed the squirrel. But then I saw a TV series on BBC America, and it showed this gentleman in his He set up a series of puzzles and, and traps and, you know, mazes for the squirrel to go through if he wanted to get the food. And I was just astounded at how smart squirrels were. And we were watching it, the kids and I, and I said, wow, can you imagine if squirrels can learn things that we teach them, and then it just started to click, you know, his homework and the squirrels and the things that they can do. Now, you've stated on your website that the book you more recently written was the last book in the series. And I was just curious, what is it like to finish up a, a book series that you've been working on a while, all the characters that you've gotten to know? What is it like to sort of wrap that up? It's both happy and sad. I'm happy because now I can share it and it's it's out there. In a way, it's sad because I really connected with this character. Um, he, I, I like to think he has a little bit of me in there, you know, wants to learn things and he wants to do what's right. Um, I'm a bit of uh, an environmentalist, so I like saving animals and I like saving the woods and things like that. So it's kind of sad to say goodbye to him, but... I don't really know if I've truly said goodbye to him because he, there could be more adventures out there. Now, you know, you're also an independent publisher. You uh, independently publish your books. And uh, what are the struggles of being an independent publisher, but also the, the joys and advantages of doing that as well? Well, I'll start off with the good stuff. The joys of self-publishing are that I picked my illustrator. In traditional publishing, you generally don't get a say. So I decided what covers would be like. I decided what the interior illustrations would be. I decided uh, how long the books would be. So I had control over all that. And it was, it was really nice because I wanted to put out a professional-looking product. And honestly, I've seen some traditionally published books that made me think that they were done by amateurs. I mean, I had for an illustrator, and it wasn't cheap. But if you want something to look professional, you have to spend money to make money. So that was nice. The not-so-nice part is that being an independent publisher, you're not really recognized. Oh, there's a contest for debut books. Oh, but you're not included because you're an independent publisher. There's uh, book signings and book launches, but you can't go because you're an independent publisher. Though my books are available through bookstores, they can order them, like Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores. They don't want independent publishers there because there's still a stigma attached to it, even though there have been a number of bestsellers that have come from um, independent publishers. For somebody who's starting out writing and decides they want to self-publish themselves, uh, what's one piece of advice you think is the most important thing they should know going into it? If you're going to do a book that you want in schools and libraries, you really need to have it set up professionally. Um, And it You could do it yourself, but it's so hard because libraries only buy from certain venues and also with schools. So if you, like, I'm having a hard time getting into schools and libraries now. Even though my books have 
adventure, and they have what we call the STEM and STEAM principles. That's science, technology, engineering, math, and STEAM has the inclusion of art. So that those are big concepts that uh, schools are trying to get uh, kids interested in their reading. But even with those, I still have a hard time getting in because they say, oh, self-published. That means you weren't good enough to get traditionally published. The book you chose as one of your favorites is called Beautiful Joe, the Autobiography of a Dog. It's by Margaret Marshall Sanders. This one goes back away. It was first published in 1893. Now, this is a book that that may not be readily available for, and so readers might not be familiar with this book, um, or at least I wasn't when when I uh, first heard of it. For readers who haven't heard of it before or haven't had a chance to read it, what can you tell them about it? Published by uh, um, the uh, Whit Publishing Company, which has been around a very long time, and they considered it one of their classics um, in the same genre as Black Beauty, Little Women, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer. So... This is what they consider a classic. The story of Beautiful Joe is about a dog's life, but told from the point of view of the dog, which is probably what leads me to write this story from the squirrel's point of view. But it's not like a Disney movie. Uh, It starts out with the dog. His mother belongs to an abusive owner, and he kicks her. He kills the, the litter mates of this poor dog, and he abuses this animal so terribly. And it, it just breaks my heart. But then the dog moves on. He's um, adopted by a family. And the dog sees that not all humans are bad. And it goes through his life, his adventures. And uh, it ends that he's a very old dog and he's sleeping comfortably by the fire. And it's kind of the story of the movement to protect animals like um, ASPCA type situation you know to protect animals against cruel owners and what was it about this that appealed to you in particular it was told from a dog's point of view um you know you hear you you read stories and and they talk about the horse did this and the horse did that but this was told from the point of view of the dog i actually felt his emotions and his pain when he was being abused and his joy when he was rescued when I, I read this book when I was very young, and uh, it never occurred to me that you could write a story from an animal's point of view and that animals could be that sentient. Yeah, I think as the author herself freely admits, uh, she brings up the comparison to Black Beauty, uh, a kind of book where the animal tells the story. Uh, what is it about having the animal tells the story as opposed to um, a more omniscient narrator that makes it more appealing? Because it makes it more personal, it's more intimate. We see them as living, feeling, intellectual creatures. They're intelligent. And if anyone's ever watched, you know, YouTube videos, they see animals doing crazy things. Like I saw one recently where the this family was walking along the beach and they saw this octopus stranded in the sand and it was dying. It was drying out. So they scooped him up and they put him back into the sea and they walked on. The next morning, as they were walking by, because they were on vacation and they walked every morning, it looked like this same octopus was following them. So they stopped at the water's edge, and the octopus went up and actually stroked their leg as if to say, thank you for rescuing me. And I don't believe how anyone could not think that animals aren't intelligent, thinking creatures. 
you talked a little bit about the how this book starts out, and it's probably the most difficult part to get through. It details that mistreatment Joe suffers uh, before he's rescued. Um, how do you think young readers might approach something like that? And do you think it's important not to shield them uh, from such realities of how animals are sometimes treated? You know, if you've ever seen a Disney movie, you know it always opens someone dying or something terrible happening. We're all surrounded by so much, you know, bad news and, and, and death and, and horror that I don't think that they would have trouble understanding it, especially by the time they get into the middle of the story or to the end. They've been taken on this journey, so they see something terrible happen, but then they see resolution. Joe is the main character of this book, um, and it is about his story. But in many ways, uh, it deals with a lot of different animals as well and about how society as a whole treats many different types of animals. And I'm just wondering if you want to talk about that a little bit, about what she's saying about how human society in general views and treats animals. Well, that's exactly it. We use them. I mean, and, and I understand, um, like, police dogs are necessary. I understand that horses are ne were necessary for farms and things like that, and and I'm not going to get into the whole vegan thing. But there are times, like, people who use animals, uh, like Pitbull. That dog was made to be vicious. Uh, weren't born that way. I mean, of course, there's always the strayed. You can have a mean dog, a mean cat, just like you can have a mean person. Who knows what makes them mean? But generally speaking, we use animals and don't think anything more beyond what we want them to do. Uh, like people, oh, I'm moving, and it's just so inconvenient for me to take the cat. So they drive somewhere, and they dump the cat off. We see them as a commodity sometimes. Now, apart from Black Beauty, one other book that Beautiful Joe reminded me of was an adult book, uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Uh, and that one, Upton Sinclair wrote about the, the abuses of the meatpacking industry in Chicago in the earliest 20th century. And it's in a novel form, uh, but with the idea of informing the public about the truth of what was really going on um, at that time. Do you think that's something to keep in mind as we read the story or just focus on the story? I think that's a little much for any children reading the story. Uh, Upton Sinclair is good for later years. <laughs> but I think that you know, that they should just start with the story and then move on from there because there are so many other wonderful stories that can help educate and, you know, change our minds and our perceptions, you know, our fellow creatures here on Earth. Now, this is kind of an, an episodic book rather than a traditional uh, story. So we get a lot of different stories here uh, about his friendship with other dogs like Jim and Billy the story of the Englishman and the hotel fire. I'm just wondering if there are one or two particular stories within that book that stand out for you. Like the, the one with the draft horse where someone was saying, but it's only a draft horse. You know, it's not just a horse. It's not just a parrot. It's not just a cat. This is a living, feeling creature. And, and, and you know, the way we look at other animals, you know, Joe is seeing how humans, you know, treat other animals. And he sees good and he sees bad, but I don't know, just maybe because my neighbor had horses and he let me ride his horse. And, and it makes me angry when people say, well, it's only a horse. This horse had feeling, it felt pain. And I guess maybe the horse, because I grew up near horses. 
The author of this book, uh, Margaret Marshall Sanders, uh, she actually wrote under the name Marshall Sanders. Uh, she's almost just as fascinating as the book she wrote. I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about her and um, what inspired her and the impact the book had. I don't remember a lot of her history. I just remember that under um, Marshall, uh, I think because back in those days, women authors weren't really, you know, encouraged. No, she was very big into the, I don't know if it was the ASPCA at the time, but she was very into much, uh, very much into welfare and things like that. Now, this book, as I mentioned, was written in 1893, so over 100 years ago. Uh, what do you think, why is it still relevant today, though? I have people like Michael Vick thinking it's okay to use dogs for fighting and to bet on and think nothing of it. When you have, you know, people who just dump off unwanted animals, who don't fix them, uh, when people think nothing about poisoning, setting poison out because they have a rat, and I understand not liking rats, but it poisons the fox. And, oh, let me shoot a bear because it's eating my tree. You're in the bear's habitat. Um, you know, we still have this attitude is that you know, we only like animals when they're convenient. Um, I mean, just look at the... The Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus. I mean, I love the circus, but what those animals go through, they're taken from, you know, the wild or they're born in captivity. What kind of life is that for an animal? You know, so we still have ways to go. So this is still very much relevant. Is there a particular passage from the book that really stands out for you that you'd like to share? It's, it's not very long. It, this takes place uh, right after Joe is rescued. Now, he's had his ears and his tail cut off by his cruel master, and this uh, young boy has rescued him and brought him to um, a friend's house where he knows the dog will be cared for. And uh, this young woman, Miss Laura, she's finding out, she wants to find out what's going to happen to him. Um, she's been told he got hurt, so the boy, she tells, says, tell me how he got hurt. When he had finished his account of rescuing me from Jenkins, she said quietly, You will have the man punished? Punishing him won't stop him from being cruel. It will put a check on his cruelty. It would do any good, said the young man doggedly. The young girl stood up very straight and tall, her brown eyes flashing and her one hand pointed at me. Will you let that pass? That animal has been wrong, and it looks to you to right the wrong. The coward who has named it for life should be punished. A child has a voice to tell it's wrong. A poor dumb must suffer in silence, in bitter, bitter silence. And what is it about that, that passage that um, speaks to you? We can all do something to help an animal. Drop off extra food at the, at the animal shelter. You know, have your pets neutered so they don't overpopulate. If you're not going to be responsible, don't get one. Just don't do any harm because, you know, they really have no voice. And it's up to everyone else to stop abuse. There's no reason for animals to be abused or neglected or starved. That's not the point that I want to make. I just want to make the point that, you know, we can all just be kinder. We can be more compassionate. We can think outside ourselves. And that's kind of what... Jack has to see that he he tells stories of how he was mistreated by humans, and so does Rat, and so does Buck, and all the animals have stories about mistreatment, and yet they also have um, stories of how 
they became friends with humans and humans helped them. So it's a two-way street. Charlotte, uh, thank you so much for uh, bringing this book to my attention and for taking the time to talk to me about it today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm just looking at my copy here. It was eight years old and it's, it's worn. The binding's kind of ripped and, you know, I open it up and I read through a few pages and it's, it's like I'm back to being eight years old and reading it for the first time. It's just such, it's my absolute most favorite book. You can find Charlotte's website at charlottebenardo.blogspot.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art is provided by Creative Pro 180, courtesy of Fiverr, which can be found at www.fiverr.com. You can visit me at jleemott.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. Until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.